makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Betu washtelo oyate do kahe wichake imachia pelo naha iuha chante washte ana pechu zapielo le unkipike he washtelo oyate hona umpi ohola oskate wichoni. Welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. And the whole world is a beautiful day. It's, it's uh, good for all of us to be here and let the people hear your voice respectfully and celebrate life. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. Our website is firstvoicesindigenousradio.org, and I want to thank you for your generosity, for being there, and for being here today. You know who you are. Without you, we cannot continue. And my name is Teoksan Ghost Horse, and I am your host for First Voices Radio. Today, we're going to be talking about something that you may or may not know about cosmology, and this is very important, folks. It's not going to have to deal with the peace and war and the sensationalism of it or anything else. It has to do with real health that's been here long before, long before the Western world showed up in the Western world. The Western mind showed up in the Western world. And so I have to get used to speaking English again and in that way of understanding it as as, uh, living in New York and and the East Coast here, I want to understand for myself that who I am as a as a native person, not a Native American, but a native person, an indigenous and original people's person here uh, in the East Coast. And understanding the languages and cosmologies is a little different. Um, and so if you would excuse me for maybe not saying an English word correctly or even a thought and a concept that we understand it in the hierarchical concept in this language. And I'm going to do my best here today to offer you something that I think is worthwhile. We'll be interviewing Anthony Della Flora, who has been for the past three decades has encompassed everything from reporting for a daily newspaper to uh, running a film festival and producing television and films and screenwriting. And as a reporter, editor, and columnist for the Albuquerque Journal for 23 years, Della Flora covered a variety of beats 
from crime to the arts. And, and he founded the production company Taos Communications Empire with James Lujan of Taos Pueblo. And the company produced several full-length documentaries, including High Strange News, New Mexico, and The Language of Spirituality. And Della Flora also produced programming for KNME TV, KNME TV, the PBS affiliate in uh, Albuquerque, including the documentary Sleeping Monsters, Sacred Fires, Volcanoes of New Mexico. And in 2000, he launched the Duke City Shootout Filmmaking Festival, also a, uh, served as co-director, co-executive producer for the 65 short film shot during the annual event. And recently, Della Flora produced documentary videos for the city of Albuquerque, and uh, he currently has two film scripts optioned and is working to develop for two pilot TV shows for, for set in New Mexico. He resides in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the past 35 years. And we'll be talking to Anthony down the road. And I'm going to pose some suggestions and questions to you about the myth of a Western superiority. We're back in the early 20th century at the dawn of modern physics pioneering scientists such as Niels Bohr and Max Planck and Werner Heisenberg were making discoveries that would overturn everything we thought we knew about the way the world worked as they developed what would come to be known as quantum physics. In the fields, the field continues to intrigue, mystify, and in many instances defy explanations to this day for some people, that is. We are talking about, of course, the term discovery is relative. The, the way Columbus discovered people who were already there. Native Americans had developed sophisticated concepts of how the world worked centuries before the breakthroughs of Western physicists. What they also had that Western physicists didn't were verbal-based languages suitable for describing the dynamic interactions within the world of quantum physics and the nature of reality. And it wasn't too far into the 20th century that Heisenberg lamented the limitations of noun-heavy Western languages in explaining physics. And soon math was the only language that physicists could speak in, and even that had its biases. The language of spirituality, which to me is a fascinating documentary film that emerges out of an ongoing dialogue between Western scientists and Native elders. And it begun in, 19, in 1992 when Blackfoot elder Leroy Littlebear approached physicist David Bohm exactly 500 years after Columbus has set foot on this continent. And it represents the first time in a post-colonial era where indigenous ways of knowing and leading-edge science meet on truly equal footing. Let me say that again. The Native languages represent the first time in the post-colonial era where indigenous ways of knowing and leading-edge science meet on truly equal footing. Little-known parallels between indigenous worldviews and quantum theory, such as a recognition that everything that exists vibrates and that, quote, process and relationship, unquote, underlie reality rather than discrete building blocks of things, Native elders Little Bear and Joseph Rael are featured in the film, along with physicist Fred Allen Wolf, physicist author F. David Peet, linguist Dan Muhawk Alford, and others. And the film is dedicated to Alford, who was invited by his mentor, Sakej Youngblood Henderson, to participate in the dialogue and was the driving force in helping set up annual dialogues now run by Seed Graduate Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
And among the themes, the film explores the limits of Indo-European languages such as English, which depend heavily on nouns to comprehend reality and by definition stop movement and juxtaposes this with certain native languages which see the world as a fluid place of dynamic interaction and speakers can go all day long without the uttering of a single noun. Now think about this. Alfred describes himself as standing at the lonely crossroads of quantum theory, Native America, consciousness, and linguistics. We've heard about the quantum theory, but we shy away from it because our minds are subjected to thinking that we are not intelligent enough to say this. But think about if a people who are subjected and shelved as not educated in the American, the Western way— and science and elitism and all these things that, that make way for hierarchical, rational minds, that Native Americans who still speak their language, and I, I say this quite often, a lot of our languages in the Western Hemisphere cannot be translated truly, and this is, this is not true about other languages, truly, because they are also, those other languages are also subjective and noun-filled. But when you come to a Native America, you look at the languages that you can talk all day long without uttering a single noun because it has to do with consciousness and linguistics. The film also introduces the theories of the much maligned linguist Benjamin Worf and does an excellent job defending Worf against the straw that man arguments that limited his work to the so called hypotheses of Worf's appear. So we are introducing the possibility that native languages and native consciousness may provide a more suitable window for understanding ramifications of leading-edge science. Science itself has been limited by its blind spot that mostly failed to recognize the similarity in logic between the grammar of Indo-European languages and the structure of Western science formulations. And David Bohm was an exception in that he painfully understood this limitation and even tried to create a language composed exclusively of verbs, which he called a Rio mode, or I think it's R-H-E-O-M-O-D-E, Rio mode, and from which is from the Greek Rio to flow. At the time, Bohm was attempting to create the Rio mode. He was probably unaware of the already existing native languages, which already largely accomplished what he was trying to do. So if the languages are there and they are talking in quantum physics, and, and, and those of you who have listened to First Voices Radio understand those languages that I start out with every time are talking in quantum physics encoded language. Think about where your mind is going with what I just said. We're going to present this. It's called the language of spirituality. And we'll come back to you, and we're going to have on the line our friend Anthony Delaflora and this voice that you're hearing, Teokas and Ghost Tours, the language of spirituality. In 1992, the Fetzler Institute of Kalamazoo, Michigan, hosted a science dialogue between Westerners and Native peoples. Among those attending were indigenous scholars and elders, linguists, and quantum physics, including David Bohm, a colleague of Albert Einstein. Bohm was considered 
one of the most brilliant and controversial physicists of the 20th century. He died a few months after the gathering, but the event spawned a continuing series of dialogues that have been held in, in Alberta, Canada, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The dialogues explored the similarities between English languages, uh, native languages, physics, and uh, linguistics. And the way we perceive the world, although we have marked it differently in the Western world. And now, decades later, we are understanding the invisible world in quantum physics in the native languages of the Western Hemisphere. And the mysteries of these unseen realms are now present the language of spirituality. The way you speak has something to do with the way you think, and vice versa. That there is a uh, determining influence, a shaping influence on our speech that comes from our thought and our thoughts are also subtly shaped by the forms of language which we're going to speak them in. Uh, I think that's where all of this starts at the very earliest when when a child is on our knee and a ball's bouncing across in front of us and we would say in English, look, a ball, more likely than not. Whereas my feeling is that what would come out of an Indian's mouth is more like, look, bouncing. So paying attention to the dynamic quality of what's going on, not static objects, you know. One of, the, one of the things that has uh, intrigued me for quite a while after I started really understanding more what was going on in quantum physics by, by understanding Native America more, I started noticing then how linguistic physics has actually become during this century and certain... Um, instances that I pointed to where there was some very interesting linguistic insights going on. So for instance, um, Heisenberg did something, uh, said something at the near the beginning of the century that I've called Heisenberg's lament. And it's one of the most plaintive things in the world. He said, we've reached the limits of our language. We've reached the limits of our language. And I had to know what he meant by that. So I started going further and he says, well, we want to describe the inner structure of an atom, but we can't do that in ordinary language. So then I started wondering, well, what does he mean by ordinary language? He mean Western languages? that are down-oriented? Do Native American languages fall under the label ordinary language? Well, I had to assume that Heisenberg um, didn't know anything about Native American languages. And once I assumed that, I realized that the door was still open, that maybe these Native languages uh, might be able to play an interesting role the problem, the problem, as we try to express uh, today, is the science of thinking is very much based on math. 
And the reasoning process, okay, I know the scientists will, will uh, deny this, but being observers on the outside, I can see what's going on. The scientific, the, the mathematical logic is very similar to the English logic. In English, it's polarizations like good and bad, saint, sinner, day, night, black, white. See? One of the claims that Chomskyans and others have been making for a long time is that there is such a thing as universal human logic. And I don't think so. I think Native American languages just shoot that right in the head. That, that this indicates that there is no universal human logic at all. That logic, as well as, as science and philosophy, grow out of the grammar of the language. That all of the assumptions that they're going to be based on are already there in the grammar. To, to hear uh, Leon speak about uh, the Inapiho way of language, what, how the symbols of, of La and, and Ka and Be and all these different sounds, what, how the one and the two and the three and the four, how they all form from the sacred language of the, of the Navajo people, that was very, that opened up my eyes to uh, this must have been the way tribal peoples all over the universe began to first speak using the sacred language form. And how uh, the English language and the languages which have been developed in our the culture of, of so-called science, which is primarily development from the, uh, the, the Western projective language structure, not the sacred language structure, but the language structure in which I don't care what the sound is, I say that sound stands for that, and that's what it is. So if I say cat, it's cat. If I say chat in French, it's still cat. Okay? If I say katza of Deutsch, it's still cat. It doesn't matter what it is, what the sound is, whatever it is, it denotes cat. There's no such thing in the sacred language system. Sacred sounds have meanings themselves. What mathematical languages are, are languages that have been stripped of most of the culture, but they're still not fully autonomous. And that was shown to me by a buddy of mine in Zuri named Andy Hillgardner. And that is the language of spirituality. And you and uh, others who are looking to find another way to express yourselves can also come and understand that maybe the native language has that expression and that way of thinking that is much different and expandable beyond the language that I'm speaking to you in now. The evolutions that we are looking for is, is in this, these languages. And, and because we have put it aside and we put it out of sight, out of mind, with native people, with Indians, with original peoples, or whatever comfortable name that's being called to us now, these languages contain maybe that expandable possibility this society needs. And I say that, but I'm not saying that it is the answer. I am only offering to you that it's a suggestion, it's a possibility. And why don't we have more? First of all, I want to just welcome Anthony Della Flora to First Voices Indigenous Radio from New Mexico. Thank you for joining us this morning, Anthony. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I, um, I was just listening to the feed before, and it was like, I, I realized that was the first time I've heard it on the radio. It was pretty cool. And it's getting out to a lot of people, getting, you know, getting around the world. Anthony, we spoke a little bit yesterday about why you got interested in this, 
you told me that you were hearing this, but no one was uh, actually videotaping it or recording it, and you decided to pick it up from the where you were involved after the beginning of this conference and up uh, the whole ideas about quantum physics and modern science and, and Native American languages, speaking the same language, so to speak. Native Americans are speaking the same language as quantum physics, as physicists are speaking to mathematicians. Wait a minute, that that's impossible. Can you take it from there, Anthony? Well, sure. Um, let me let me. I'll back up just a little bit um, to let your listeners know how I got into this. Um, this uh, Dan Moonhawk Alford, who was speaking, was uh, my original contact with this. Of course, I've been living out here in New Mexico for thirty-five years, and. This is sort of Indian country. We've got twenty something pueblos still existing around here and everything. And, and and I'd heard I'd heard things about how the languages were structurally different, but I never really got to explore that very much. And um, Dan came out from California one time to speak at a place called the Steed Graduate Institute here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And his presentation was titled "God is Not a Noun in Native America." And uh, my friend who ran seats said, you got to come and listen to this guy. This is really important stuff. And so I did, and he, he basically introduced me to this concept of a verb-based language. And uh, with some examples, and I can't think of all of them, but I know that one term for, that he said he used for great spirit or whatever was called uh, dwells above, which, of course, doesn't contain a noun in it. Mm-hmm. And from that starting point, he sort of explained how these verb-based languages are structured. And anyway, I, I, I became friends with Dan, and it, I saw him speak on another similar subject once. And he, um, I told him I was very interested in pursuing this. I thought, you know, there was a great story to be told here. And he invited me to um, one of these conferences between elders and um, physicists and stuff that would happen to be, I believe it was 1998, that was being held in Banff, Alberta, Canada. And uh, at, that, at that point, it was only, you could only get into this by invitation. So I was very honored that Dan um, invited me to this. The only problem was it was 1,700 miles away from Albuquerque. So <laughs> fortunately, I had a good friend, and I was still working at the newspaper, so I didn't have a lot of time off. But fortunately, I had a friend who loved to drive. So in, in the space of a week uh, or six days, I think, we drove to Banff and um, attended a two-and-a-half-day conference and got back to Albuquerque in time for me to go to work again. It was, it was quite, a, quite a trip. But the, the main thing was I, I got to be at one of these conferences and meet uh, Leeway, Little Bear, and Sagesh Henderson and some of the other people who've been involved in this in this dialogue from the very beginning. And I was just entranced by it, and I uh, I wasn't able to uh, really, well, I, I was, when I went up, I knew I wasn't going to be able to record anything or videotape anything, but it was more just to get to meet the folks involved, see how they ran the dialogues, get kind of a flavor for the whole thing, and it proved very valuable. So by the time I got back to Albuquerque, and, uh, you know, I found out that um, my friend at the Graduate Institute was to try to bring the conference to Albuquerque because they didn't know if they were going to have funding to do it in Canada anymore. They didn't know how it was going to go out. So they got it, you know, the very next year brought to Albuquerque, and I said, you know, I love your permission to go in and start doing a piece about this and interviewing these people because it's a 
great stuff. So that's kind of how it all got started. The uh, the question again after the, the groundbreaking work that you that you've been paid attention to by Benjamin Wharf and the native and Western languages. The main differences between these languages and and uh, to think about how the biases or non-biases appear um, because I'm thinking in the Western right now because of where I'm at and speaking a language. Uh, that I tend to think about Native Americans as outside, out of sight, out of mind, and therefore they're not, they don't matter, even what their language is, their culture, or anything. It doesn't matter because we have them on in their category. We have them on a shelf where they can be controlled. But now, mm-hmm. in understanding even the Lakota language as much as I do, there is bias inherent in, in this language of English about how we look at Native people, so we tend to to do what I just said before is, is is get them out of the way so we can get on with trying to figure out our, our own way of, of dealing scientifically with life um, and applying that to almost everything, including our languages. Right. Well, there's, um, yeah, I think something that I try to express in the, in the movie is really to give people um, uh, sort of an easy way to, to begin to understand it. And I think, I think Dan... Um, summed it up in his, his very first quote there, he, you know, when you watch the ball, he said, Westerners see a ball, and um, Native Americans would tend to see the bounce, the action of the bouncing. And to me, it doesn't sound like much, but to me, that is a, that is a profound difference mm-hmm. in, in the way we look at the world. And are we seeing the action? Are we, are we focusing on a thing, or are we focusing on the process? And I, you know, I... I think that proves his point. How could you not see the world differently with that with that type of focus? And uh, you know, I, I think there's other um, things about uh, oh, how I think one of the other things was we uh, I think Leroy Littlebear relates a story um, talking about how um, Western languages, when we speak them, tend to bring up images in our head. And uh, uh, Native Americans bring up, uh, or their languages almost bring up a feeling, an actual kinesthetic feeling, I think is the term he used in the body. He said, so if, if I, he was relating what another um, elder had told him about, if, if I say I'm going to ride a horse, if I say it in English, I get a picture in my head and of me riding a horse. If I say it in Blackfoot, I... You know, basically saying, I feel like I'm riding the horse. I get a feeling, an actual feeling in my body of riding the horse. And, and you know, Dan Alford makes the point that, that that, in effect, more closely reflects the nature of reality. If you're, you know, as opposed to seeing a picture of, of the reality. And that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's many other, I think, Differences, but I think those are, are kind of the um, main things. Oh, and I think I think one other thing too, which is not necessarily maybe the language per se, but just just the way of looking at the world is. You know, Leroy Little Bear also talks about how you know English is based sort of um, on logic and, and scientific thinking in a way, and, and we go with the more depth in that in the movie. But you know, um, as a Westerner, um, as Westerners, we we look at things in dichotomy. So everything is good, bad, black, white, day, night. Um, there's there's got to be an opposite 
um, you know, for everything. And and I think it, his point is that in in Native America, everything is maybe seen more on a on a spectrum, or it's all part of one thing. There's no, there doesn't necessarily have to be opposition in everything. That things, you know, are all ultimately related. As you know, talk about all my relatives, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a different. Again, this is a different way. Uh, you know, especially me coming from Western tradition of of looking at things. And I think we talked about it yesterday. You know, just a very simple uh, example is I go out in my backyard. I see something growing over in the corner, and I might say that's a weed, but somebody else might say, you know what, that's a medicinal plant. I can use that to, you know, cure whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is just, you know, it, it's, uh, again, this is another example of how we look at the world and how we process the world. And it's true, because when you're saying that the language is in one, you, one is using the language, using reality, and one is living the reality. And uh, it t- makes a big difference. If you're using reality, then everything becomes a make-believe, so to speak, and the reality is not really happening to you except the physicality. And so we, we tend to uh, sense life through our instincts rather than using the intuition. If, a, if someone is looking at the sun, and for instance, we see it for face value, what it is and what it does to us scientifically, it brings heat and all these things. But you have thinkers of the native languages that state that the language is, instead of just looking at the sun, we are looking at what is behind the sun on the other side of the sun. So the language is expanding as we speak because it's, it's verb. In Lakota, some say the language is 97 to 98 percent verb. And it's always action, stating that everything seems is alive to us. It's moving inside the yeah. molecules, electrons, everything is moving. So nothing is still to us. That is a whole process that I, I really think that the language of spirituality is bringing out. And But the uh, connections between that worldview of Native Americans and theories of quantum physics and consciousness. Now it's the consciousness, how we are approaching even looking at these Native American languages as valid within the Western world. Is that possible? Do you think that is ever possible to encompass or include or even squeeze into a very narrow way of thinking in, in the Western world? That's Anthony Delaflore who's capturing the, that meeting of the mind's beginnings and ongoing dialogue in the language of spirituality and a film about the intersection of spirituality, modern science, and language. We'll be back with that second half of the interview after this. I've been riding waves, child, guilt through all my days, child. How this place was settled, the murder and the shame Secrets being exposed, child, truth we must uphold, child Constant fight for justice, to pave the way for change Living in denial, going through the same old cycle Penal colony survival, depending on your ball and chain System gonna customize you The man ain't gonna redefine you Gotta hunt like a nighttime spider Depending on your ball and chain
back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teok Sang Ghost Horse. We're going to finish this out with Anthony Della Flora about the language of spirituality. So please stay tuned. Um, keep the open mind, open heart, and join us here on First Voices Radio. Now it's a consciousness how we are approaching even looking at these Native American languages as valid within the Western world. Is that possible? Do you think that is ever possible to encompass or include or even squeeze into a very narrow way of thinking in, in the Western world? Well, I, I, I do. I, I, I think it can. And I, I mean, that's, that's almost that's sort of the point of the movie. It's just, 
it's it's a it's a process of how do you? I mean, obviously, Native Americans understand this at a level, especially the people who are attending these conferences, and 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 the people who come to the conferences from outside who begin to understand what's going on. But um, you know, it's just a matter of of convincing you know a broader um, range of scientists and people of, of Western persuasion that there is some value here. And I'm not saying that's easy, but uh, again, the people. Uh, represented in the movie, um, theoretical physicists, Fred Allen, well, people who have come to this and participated and been part of it see the value. It's just a matter of whether people want to take the time and whether they want to set their biases aside. And David Pete talks about that. You know, he he um, he was the one who's taken time to to explore uh, native languages and physics and things. And, you know, he talks about the resistance from the Western physicists at the first um, at the first meeting and in subsequent meeting and I, I think you alluded to it before there's this bias that it's all oh, a bunch of people with stories you know and it's not real science and it's not western science so it can't be valid and I think one of the underlying themes to this is that you know is that science western science is is just one part of a larger fabric it is one way to look at the world. You can look. You can look at everything in the world through a scientific lens, and that's fine. But it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't, you know, necessarily explain the nature of reality or consciousness or anything. And um, by taking the time to look at these other alternative ways of looking at the world, you begin to build a, you know, a, a, a whole cloth out of this. With all these strands from, you know, different backgrounds and stuff. And I think you come out with a more uh, fully rounded view of how things work and, and, and additional tools for, for maybe attacking a problem from a different way. I, I wonder, you know, um, there was this, I never got to interview this person, but there was, a, um, I believe, a Navajo man, and I'm blanking on his name, but who, who worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories as a physicist. And um, I've always... Uh, been intrigued. I've never been able to track him down, but I've always been, you know, wondered how uh, how does that work? What did he bring to something as highly technical and highly scientific as that from his background? And uh, I, I think, you know, I think um, until um, uh, people like that are represented in the movie get a chance to be out in the world, get a chance to express their ideas to a larger audience, get a chance to actually. They work with Western physicists on a on a one to one basis or on a daily basis. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I who knows what could happen at that point. But uh, I mean, I think the, the barrier, unfortunately, still may be the language. I don't know, you know, for instance, how many physicists are going to take time to learn Hopi. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I think again, I think it's worthwhile. I mean. Uh, you know, there. What? When? When do you? You know, when do you want to stop learning about life? You know, if you if you had another avenue to to, to pursue to find out more about the world we live in, why would you not do that? Yeah, I do hear you, and I'm thinking once you mentioned that, uh, you know, the relationship that or the understanding of a relationship that uh, binds us together by natural forces, obviously, and all forms of life have been very fundamental in, in the ability of 
in this case, indigenous peoples, who have lived this way for millennia in spiritual and physical harmony with the land, as you see clearly that modern science has taken us away and disconnected from the land. And in a way, it, it, it says that it's rationalizing that we are going back to the land. That's the logic of it, to destroy our very base that we see as primitive, but yet to come back to it because we can't get away from the natural clarity that we do have with the land. And it's clear that First Peoples are offering this perspective and this the language of spirituality, can, I think, can help us work toward that solution even now at this time of even environmental crisis. And uh, there's a few books out there that I know of, um, authors, native authors that are, that uh, Leroy Little Bear even has parts in it, uh, such as Native Science is one. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that, the natural laws, yeah. laws of interdependence. And so, it's new to the Western world, but to Native people, we've been kind of waiting for this to happen. The language, especially the language, how we view it, how we see it, how we feel it, as you as you would say, is so true. Because, And I would say the Lakota is not an emotional language. It's feeling language. And the, the emotions come because we're not feeling correctly. And, and so the, the mind tries to figure it out. And, and of course, we have subjective uh, words, emotion, emotive words in, in English, such as love and hatred and anger and all those things, and they're consequential most of the time. So I think about, okay, if you, we went back and felt the language, we would freely and truly feel the person who is next to us through intuitive uh, values. And that's what we feel more with, with Mother Earth and what, what is around us. In other words, like a heart-think language. And, and I think that's what it is because you know that animals or that tree or those things that we deem as alive also have consciousness in, in the languages that we speak. And that so therefore everything has conscious. It's just that in the Western world we think that because a desk or a chair is, is dead and doesn't breathe and doesn't, have a, doesn't think and doesn't feel like we do as humans, we, we tend to humanize everything or either as uh, intelligent because it thinks and it feels and has consciousness. And, and when it doesn't, it's dead. So, again, your, your duality of, you know, black and white is there again. But if you go beyond that and include that chair is in the vicinity of your consciousness, therefore that chair also has consciousness. You see it as a, something created to care for you. In other words, if you go sit down in that chair, that chair is caring for you, therefore it has a consciousness. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know if I'm... I, I, I mean, one of the things that, that I talked about with Dan was, for instance, is how uh, when Native Americans look at, you know, they don't look at, at them as objects, but it, what we would look at is an object like a chair, it's, it's, you look at it more again as also as a, as a function, okay? So the chair, in one instance, is something that I'm able to rest myself on or support myself with while I eat, for instance, or whatever, okay? Mm-hmm. But in the next, it, then, it, you know, next minute, it could be used as a ladder to get something off a high shelf, right? Mm-hmm. Or somebody broke into my house, it could be used as a weapon. You know, so it's not, so it's not when we say chair in English, we pretty much know what we're talking about. It's this thing, it's this there, but it's, uh, in, in Native America, it's, uh, this, all these things have a process. They're all, they can be one thing at one time and something else. And it's, again, getting back to this kind of dynamic, fluid way of looking at the world. So 
you know, from a Western perspective, I look at this thing that, you know, this bulky object that sits there, but maybe from your perspective, it's something that serves a variety of functions in my world. And in that way, too, I think that sort of gets to what you're talking about is in, in that it's, it's sort of a living object in that way because it is, it is changeable. It, it serves different purposes and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's getting exactly to what you're talking mm-hmm. about, but that was one of the examples that you know Dan had talked to me about. And, and uh, again, so not much, you know, not so much everything's black and white, but that there's a whole range of things that mm-hmm. everything serves a purpose for. Anthony De La Flora, you've had uh, some experts. And in this program of First Voices, I I try to stay away from experts, but in this case, they're they're the combination of of native people, uh, unexpectedly, uh, these physicists. I would say they were surprised that Native folks spoke the language that they were speaking in the math, so to speak, but that even right. even even the language goes a little bit more inclusive than the math that they were given to express uh, life or the formula of equality or relativity in. Um, I mean, David Pete, who who is of Liverpool University and uh, who led to an encounter with a physicist, David Bohm, um, who, whom Einstein described as a spiritual son. Tell us a little bit about that. What does he mean, a spiritual son? Yeah, Dave, well, from what I know about David, I've done a little research and it's been a while, but he was, you know, he, he took off from where Einstein left off and was, again, the theoretical physicist. But his um, he, in his later years, really focused on consciousness. And what what was consciousness, and how you know could could science help explain that, as opposed to you know what makes atoms work and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, and, and in the course of that, he became um, good friends with Krishnamurti, the, the Indian mystic and philosopher. And they had many dialogues together, which some I think you can still see on YouTube um, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. So, you know, he, he always um, tried to incorporate this other, I guess, non-scientific view into his thinking, because I think instinctively he knew that there was more than just mathematical equations and things on, uh, to explain how, you know, what consciousness was and how it worked. So um, I, I, think, I think Krishnamurti was the start of it. I think, uh, I think the meeting, you know, his... His meeting in 1992 with the elders was sort of the culmination of everything he did because they were, of course, talking about um, spirituality and energies and things. And, and, I, and I think from the description of David Bohm, it's sort of like he finally felt that he had found home. You know, you mentioned before that uh, David Bohm had tried to uh, start a, you know, create a verb-based language which he did completely unaware of what was going on in, in Native America. And it didn't quite work uh, the way he had intended, but then he shows up at the conference and he hears, uh, he hears these elders, whether they're speaking about their cosmology or spirituality or science or whatever, but speaking exactly in this type of language he had envisioned. And um, I, I just, you know, I think, again, my impression from talking to David Pete was this, this was just... Um, a wonderful culmination of everything he had been exploring up to that point. And he died less than a year later. He was not well at that last conference. Uh, 
whatever, I forget what he died of, but whatever he had died of, he already was already suffering from it at that point. But he, he David Pete uh, related a story where, you know, the, the uh, um, elders there realized that he was not feeling well, and they did a ceremony to give him energy. And at one point in, in, during the course of this, David Bohm got up and, and started to dance. During one of the ceremonies, he started to dance. He started, he started to, to dance. Oh, wow. Okay. And 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 David Pete, he said he mentions that he goes, if you knew David Bohm, this was not the kind of guy who was going to get up and dance <laughs> anywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, he um, he was a, he was a sober-minded, rational scientist in all respects, and very conservative. This this was not something he would have done. And he was so infused with energy and and I think the joy of this discovery that he got up and participated in, in the dancing with mm. the rest of the group there. Mm. And so, you know, I, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I think it's all part of that, that he, here was a, here was a guy who was open-minded enough to, to walk into this situation, learn what he could do and came out a different person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really interesting to uh, Anthony Delaflora that, you know, that people uh, that you talk about have studied these these topics before and uh, they approached everything coming into this conference as scientists and, and thinkers, free thinkers, I would say. Some have even, like David Pete, have, have brought in synchronicity and creativity and chaos theory and quantum theory and also the Native American universe. And uh, well, you have Fred Allen Wolf, who's a physicist and writer at uh, UCLA, continues throughout the world to write and conduct research in a relationship of quantum physics to consciousness we we have uh, achieved sciences we have achieved religions and spiritualities that we have become so heavenly that we're no earthly good anymore and uh, i think this is one of those thought process and the words that come across that would bring you back down to earth to really and truly have tree roots consciousness thinking processes start again so we can really get our act together, as they say, with uh, what we are dealing with and how we are treating Mother Earth. And uh, But it's all coming back to that language of spirituality and, and, and that we need to understand the language of spirituality. And, and of course, we're going to be talking more here in the, in the future, uh, Anthony. But right now, I just want to thank you and maybe have a final word here. Well, I, I just wanted to pick up on what you said. Um, Glenn Perry, who runs Seed Institute, you know, uh, some props to him because he he's the one in charge of inviting this group of people. I was very conscious, too, of not making it sound like something new agey because that's been done to death. And it, and I don't know that it, who, who can say what its effect, effectiveness was. But the fact that we had hard scientists, real physicists saying, yes, there is a correlation, there is a connection, there is a validity to this. To me, again, at least as a Westerner, that that gives a tremendous validation to what's going on. Um, you know, it, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here. And I didn't want to diminish it by bringing, you know, bringing, let's say, a lot of non-scientists into the discussion to sort of say, yeah, this, this is really great. It, it's, you know, there's these connections. We don't really understand them, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but they're there. But I, I, I thought, you know, I thought in this case, I, I wanted to let these people speak. Um, and I, I think that's what I do best. In the, it's, it's like I, I don't take any position necessarily on what they're talking about, but that, that's the whole point of the dialogue is to hear all these other voices and hear uh, 
um, the perspectives of people who, especially from the Western world, have been exposed to this and now see some truth and, and validity in, in the Native American tradition. Um, and again, I think as you talked about at the beginning of the show, this is, this is important. Even, you know, I, I, I sort of, uh, you know, I think you had said that even Native people sometimes feel small and insignificant and that they don't have any relevance to the modern world and their traditions serve no purpose, really. Well, again, I think if, I think if anything was clear out of this movie was that the opposite is true, that, that there is uh, a vast wealth of knowledge that is important and relevant to what's going on today from Native America. And if you took no other message out of it than that, then that's great. But I hope, I hope the questions, uh, there's more questions in this thing, I think, than answers, but I hope the questions keep people interested, uh, get them to look further into the subject, uh, explore it, I do think it's going to spawn another conference. There are much more, that many more people interested in using or trying to or figuring out an, another way, not a new way. People are always going into the new, and that's sort of a Western goal-oriented way of looking at it. But if, the, if that way is already going ongoing, then there's not a new way. There is the way that is going on, and it happens to be the languages and understanding that has been here for millennia beyond millennia, and that is the Native way of thinking and, and feeling. And I think originally we all thought that way at one time in our history of humanity. And it's been an honor talking to you, Anthony Della Flora, producer of The Language of Spirituality. Of course, we're going to be speaking again in the future sometime. This has been really fun. Thank you for um, uh, for having me on. I thoroughly enjoyed talking about this. And um, I, I hope people find some value in the, in the premise of, of all this. Um, I think they will. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Anthony Della Flora, who's a producer of The Language of Spirituality. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and thank you for listening to First Voices Radio.
comes out the same So I take out my guitar to pass some time Late at night when it's hard to rest I hold your picture to my chest and I'm alright 